find that difficult to find. It is literally just before Revelation. Uh, 2 John, not the Gospel of John, 2 John. 2 John, and we're reading the whole of the chapter this morning. 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. In the truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to the commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children... Of your elect sister greet you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would indeed make the book live. Father, we thank you for it. We thank you that these are your words to us. Father, these are are, are your words to us today every bit as much as when John was writing to the church. Father, help us through the power of your Spirit to understand these words. Father, I pray this morning for John. I pray that you would give him what he needs this morning. I pray that you would help him through the power of the Spirit to communicate your words and help us to understand that it is not merely him that stands here and speaks, but it is you speaking through him. And Father, we pray that you would give us what we need this morning. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to listen. Help us to respond appropriately. Father, this morning we come to you in the recognition and the realization that our world is a broken place. And Father, we pray this morning for it. Even this week, again, when things change in this little part of the world politically, Father, you have commanded us to pray for our leaders, and so we do. 
Father, we pray as they once again take up roles of responsibility, uh, that you would govern them. We pray for them. We pray for wisdom for them. But ultimately, we pray that they would do what you want them to do. Father, we continue to pray for the peace of this land. We pray for Israel and Gaza. Father, we pray for those who are serving you there and, and ministering there. And Father, we pray for the church in those places, both in Israel and in Gaza. Father, we pray that your spirit would move amongst them powerfully, that many would come to know Jesus. Father, we pray this morning for us here. We pray that your spirit would move, that your spirit would open blind eyes, give life where there is death, and that you would speak in power today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you'd have to do this whenever John was on announcements to raise the, the pulpit up a bit. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you all today. <clears throat> this morning, uh, uh, we are starting a new mini-series in Second John. It's going to start today, and it's going to end today as well. Um, it's what you call a sandwich between uh, two Bible series that John's going to be working through. So um, we've been in Jonah for the last uh, four weeks, and then John's going to be moving on to First Timothy. And so John's just fitting right in the middle. Second John's just fitting right in the middle of, of both those series. If you don't know already, the, uh, the reason it's a one-off special is because, sorry, is, is a one-off special because John is the, the shortest book uh, in the Bible according to verses, uh, and the second shortest according to word count. Uh, only uh, shorter is, uh, is third John. And if you remember that nugget of information, you could just be thanking me uh, next December at Bronte's Big Fat Quiz of the Year, um, he might well include that, that nugget for us to remember. Um, the big theme of Second John is simply this. It is a call to live in the love of God in accordance with the truth of Jesus Christ. As we go through this epistle, we will return to this theme time and time again. Live in the love of God in accordance with the truth of Christ Jesus. Love and truth. Let me provide a bit of background first, and then we'll get into the text. So 2 John is the second of three epistles uh, of John that we find towards the end of the New Testament. They are followed by the book of Jude and then Revelation. And so that provides us with a, a bit of context as to where they fit in the timeline of the early church. They are positioned at the latter stages of what is recorded in the New, in the New Testament. And at this point in early church history, House churches were springing up throughout the whole Greco-Roman world, and the letters of the apostles would have been circulating among them. The circulation of these letters was made possible by several factors, which help highlight to us a glimpse of God's perfect timing in these circumstances. This is the first time in the world history that these letters could have been distributed as effectively as they were, thanks to the expansive road-building efforts of the Roman Empire 
and its legions that maintained them. And also the use <coughs> of commonly understood language in Greek. These two factors, along with others, allowed the spread of the gospel message to go much further and quicker than it could have done before this time period. As I've already mentioned, that this is a very short book in the context of the Bible, and the reason for this is simply that it was most likely written in a single, on a single piece of parchment of papyrus paper. A single piece of parchment of papyrus paper. All the peas. This limited the writer to no more than 300 Greek words. The core theme of this book circulated around two core priorities, like I said. They are truth and love. They are a continuation of what has been written about in 1 John. But because of the shortness of the letter, most scholars would believe that this letter was written for a very specific destination and therefore is addressing a specific set of circumstances. Before I move into the text, there are several questions that need to be addressed in order to provide the full context for this book. Firstly, who is the author? Second, who, who are they writing to? And then thirdly, why are they writing this letter? Who is the author? As I mentioned earlier, this letter is believed to be written quite late on in the written account of the early church in the scriptures. And it is possible that the majority of the apostolic generation had all died out. That's those that had uh, walked with Christ and were now writing to and uh, serving the church as apostles. It is widely believed that John is the author of this letter and that in all probability he was the last remaining apostle at this time. The writer who we believe is John in this passage doesn't refer to himself in name but instead refers himself uh, to himself as the elder. Now this phrase elder tells us an awful lot about both the writer and their relationship to the intended audience of the letter. The first thing this tells us is that the individual would have been known to the recipients by his title alone. There was an already established close relationship that allowed him to not include his actual name. The title that he uses also signals to us a level of authority that this individual has over the recipients. The title, therefore, not only describes the individual's age, but also that they hold an official position within the wider body of the church. By using this title, John is displaying real fatherly affection to the readers of this letter. He cares for them and wants them to be built up in Christ. And so he uses this title to emphasize the authority that has been granted to him and therefore underlines the importance of the message. The second question is, who is this letter addressed to? Well, the, the text describe them, describes them as the elect lady and to her children, or some translations say the chosen lady. It's an extremely unusual greeting for a letter in the Bible, and there are several interpretations that theologians have put to this. Whilst I don't want to get into these in much detail, as I, I don't believe they change the direction of the teaching of this letter that much, I will mention that some view this letter um, uh, as being written to a lady called either Electa or Kira, and that the letter is virtually a love letter of some kind, or that it is addressed to this lady and her children, and that these children are not only her family, but also part of the family of God, indicating that this lady has a, a church that meets in her house. However, the content of this letter, I believe, would go against this theory. For example, in uh, verse 13, John says, For the children of your elect sister greet you. And why would this elect, uh, lady elect have a sister by the same name? It doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. And also, John's language would simply be 
inappropriate if addressed to an individual lady. Instead, the more commonly viewed position is that this individual is in fact a personification of an individual church with which this elder has jurisdiction. In 1 John, the writer often refers to the readers of his letters as children. And so the same symbolic strategy is likely to be used here as well. This understanding would then lead us to believe that the lady elect is in fact a local church body, local church gathering. The third question is then, is why was this letter written in the first place? What issue was this letter trying to address? We talked earlier about the context in which the early church found itself in. The church was predominantly house churches, scattered across, in this case, mostly Asia Minor. As the church was growing and the gospel advancing, it was common practice to welcome traveling Christians as guests into your homes and into the churches. There are plenty of examples of this from Paul, who was shown hospitality by Lydia in Philippi, Jason in Thessalonica, Gaius in Corinth, and Philip in Caesarea. However, as you can imagine, such hospitality was open to easy abuse by those who were either false prophets or held false credentials. What then was the church to do? How were they to determine who was genuine and who was fake? This letter and Third John go some way to help outline who churches should welcome and who they should refuse and why. So let's get into the text. Verses 1 to 3, the greeting. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. The theme of truth and love starts from the very first sentence of this letter, and John says here that he loves this local church, and not only him, but all that know the truth. From the very outset of this letter, John is proclaiming that all who know and love the truth of who Jesus Christ is will love those that also love the truth. Truth, therefore, is the environment for Christian love. And love is a response of Christian truth. They are intrinsically connected. He continues by explaining two fundamental things about this truth. Firstly, that it abides in us. And secondly, that it will be with us forever. You see, what binds us together in love is not some whimsical feeling. It's not our social compatibility or political persuasions. What binds us in love is a common truth, not of our making, but of God's. It is the truth of the gospel for our salvation. This is what dwells within us, and this is what we can say with certainty will be with us forever. This truth will never change. It is forever true, and that is why we can rely with it, uh, on it with such certainty. It is this truth, his truth, and has not changed for thousands of years, and will continue not to change forevermore. Verse 3 brings us to our greeting, which is commonplace in the letters uh, from the apostles. These would take various forms. For example, Paul's most widely used greeting was grace to you and grace uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John changes things up ever so slightly here. Instead of a phrase that could be read as a prayer over the reader, he sets his greeting as a declaration over them, declaring the truth of Christ over them. He greets them saying, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. The order of these declared words is by no accident whatsoever. 
grace, which is unmerited favor, begins in the heart of God and is expressed towards human beings. How? By God showing us mercy. Christ taking the punishment that we were due onto his own shoulders. And how do we experience this? Through the blessing of having peace with our Father. Even in these three words, three-word greeting, John is demonstrating the gospel truth. The second section of this letter can be titled Love and Obedience, verses 4 to 6. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Just as we were commanded by the Father, now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one who have, uh, we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to this commandment. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you would walk in it. We find out now that the writer has in fact met some of the believers in this local church and that he rejoices because some of them are walking in the truth. John has either come in contact with some of the congregation who are walking in the truth of the gospel and rejoices for meeting them or he has found out that some of the local congregation are no longer walking in the truth yet he still chooses to celebrate and champion those who have remained strong. From reading on further in the passage, it is obvious to conclude that John was aware that there were some of those among them who had ceased to walk in truth. The challenge for us is to, is to determine whether we or not we are continuing to walk in truth. You see, the truth is not simply about knowledge. The phrase to walk in truth indicates to us that it is more than simply believing the vital truth. It is a call to be transformed by the truth it lives in us and we walk in it. We apply it to our lives daily. And this language helps us to liken the truth somewhat to a path that we are traveling along. It is something that keeps us on course. Going astray from revealed truth, whether that be in doctrine or revealed morals, is, simply, is not simply an unfortunate error, but an act of disobedience. For we are to walk in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. John Stott says the following, God has not revealed his truth in such a way as to leave us free at our pleasures to believe or disbelieve it, to obey or disobey it. Revelation carries with it responsibility, and the clearer the revelation, the greater the responsibility to believe and obey it. Revelation carries with it a responsibility. The challenge for us here is to reflect and ask ourselves the question of what biblical truths um, have been what biblical truths have been revealed to me that I am choosing to ignore or disobey? What active disobedience am I allowing to go unchecked in my life? That is a constant, uh, we have constantly need to be asking that question of ourselves to ensure that we are continuing to walk in the truth. The devil is often likened to a thief and we are told in John 10 that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy and one of the greatest tactics that the devil uses is that he comes to steal from us a true understanding of the truth of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 goes on to tell us that he is not writing to them a new commandment, but one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And I want to mention something briefly here that before focusing more time on the commandment itself to love one another, the writer says that he is not writing to them a new commandment, and I want to share a warning here that I feel this segment hints towards. <clears throat> As humans, we 
often seek after what is new, what is fresh, what is happening, the thing that everyone is excited about. We see it so clearly when it comes to material possessions. And with the encouragement of influencers on Instagram and TikTok, we are now, we are being conned into thinking that we are missing out unless we have the latest trend. This has always been the case, but it feels like the pressure this is putting people under is ramping up and up. And this is influencing not only our children and young people, but also discerning adults as well. And this isn't just the case with material possessions. It's also the case with liberal so-called progressive ideologies that are infiltrating our social institutions and popular thinking. We want to fit in and not see, be seen to, as being on the outside, so we go along with the flow. Truth is no longer a fixed thing for society. It has been made into something that has become somehow subjective and flexible. You've probably heard it say, my truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. There is only one truth, and that can only be found in the Word of God. It is absolute, unchanging. It is not new, but it is the truth. And the sad reality, uh, folks, is that sometimes the church falls into this trap as well. Society and culture start to teach one thing, and the church feels like they must bend to society's will to keep relevant. We cannot fall into the trap of interpreting the Bible through the lens of society. Instead, we need to be interpreting society through the lens of the Bible. We cannot fall into the trap of interpreting the Bible through the lens of society. Instead, we need to be interpreting the society through the lens of the Bible. This is why we preach the way we preach. We go through books of the Bible, take them verse by verse. We don't hide away from difficult passages. Instead, we engage with them with the purpose of seeking the truth and knowing more of the heart of God. As you read the Bible, as you read spiritual books, I urge you to seek out the truth that is held in God's word and not the shiny new thing that sometimes it feels like everyone's talking about. I will share a few examples later on, on, uh, of themes that are challenging the global church today. But for now, I'll move on. <clears throat> so what is this commandment to love one another? What does that look like and how does it differ from what we are taught by society? I want to share a few song lyrics with you now. Maybe you might recognize a few of these. Um, let me see. Through the clouds, I see love shine. Keep me warm as life grows colder. Anyone know what that is? I want to know what love is by foreigner. No? Okay. Your love lifted me higher than I've ever been lifted before. Any ideas? Oh, these are falling flat. Higher and Higher by Jackie Wilson. Lastly, you'll get this one. You're bound to get this one. Can't explain all the feelings that you're making me feel. My heart's in overdrive and you're behind the steering wheel. Anyone know that one? What's that, John? No? I believe in a thing called love by the darkness. Okay. Anyway, that fell flat. Thanks, guys. I now know how you feel when you try and get a bit of audience participation, John. <laughs> what do all these song lyrics have in common, then? They're all about how love makes you feel, isn't it? How, when you're in love, you feel warm inside, you feel cozy, excitement, nervousness, all those amazing feelings. However, the love that is being talked about in this passage is wholly different from what these song lyrics are saying. You see, Christian love is so much more than just a feeling we have or an affection towards somebody. Love is a doing word. It's an act of the will. 
It is not an involuntary, uncontrollable passion, but instead an unselfish service undertaken by deliberate choice. I often have to remind myself that love along with uh, other fruits of the Spirit are in fact fruits. In John 15, Jesus himself described us as the branches that are grafted into the true vine that is in himself. And to develop good fruits on our branches, what can we do as the branches? Well, we are the vessels. We transfer the good nutrients from the vine and allow them to be moved move towards the fruits, move through us and to make fruits. Our role in all of this is to ensure that we are feeding off the true vine. We are seeking after the truth. And in doing so, we will receive the right nutrition to develop good fruit. You see, when we know the truth and follow the truth, and when we obey the command to love, then God in his graciousness grows uh, fruits of love and other spiritual gifts in our lives. We need to be feeding from the true vine. So what does the Bible tell us about why we are to love? A great place to start for this is in 1 John 4, uh, verse 19, where it says, we love because why? He first loved us. He first loved us. That is why we love. And after this starting point, then we go into other truths that we find in God's word and we soak ourselves in all that we see of God's being and character. We go to the life of Christ and see that how he loved the downcast and oppressed. We then go to the foot of the cross where he showed his love to us most clearly. And we remember that the Son of God loved us, loved, loved you and gave himself for you and for me. We constantly remind ourselves that God could not possibly love us any more than he already does. That he loves us fully despite knowing us completely, despite knowing all the sins we have committed, all the sins we are currently committing, and all the sins we will in the future commit as well. We love because he first loved us. He made the first move. The reason we obey the Lord is because we love him. We love the Lord because we feed our souls on the truth of his word, which reveals his loving character and his great plan for our salvation. As we not only believe, but also live out these truths in our lives, we grow in truth and love, receiving more of his grace, mercy, and peace day by day. Moving on to verses 7 to 11, the writer moves into the second part of the passage and shares with us the dangers of false teaching. We'll take these verses in two sections, the first addressing how we can resist false teaching, and the second addressing our response to false teaching. In verse 7, John gives us the context of this warning. He shares with us that many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. The language used here of deceivers who have gone out into the world mirrors the call of true believers to go out into the world and make disciples. John isn't just referring to one or two individuals here, but many who are spreading false doctrine in the churches within Asia Minor. The charges that John puts to these individuals is that they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They do not believe that he was truly God and truly man. And this, of course, is an essential belief for us as Christians. Grudem describes this mystery as follows. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God 
could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that infinite God becomes one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. These deceivers were preaching a message that was anti-gospel. They were sent out by the father of lies to teach lies. From their viewpoint, they might not have seen themselves in this light. That's wholly possible. They could have viewed themselves as Christian ministries, missionaries. They were familiar with the church and with the teachings of the gospel, but in reality, their message was dangerous and needed calling out. The message was so dangerous that John describes it as being a message of the Antichrist because it strikes at the very basis of Christ's person and the work in which Christian faith is built. Jesus himself warned his disciples in Mark 13, 22 to 23 about this very thing. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. The phrase Antichrist is a striking one, and I know that John touched on it uh, during our series through Revelation not so long ago. Uh, But I think it's important to explain that in this context specifically, it is used to describe people who are radically opposed to the true doctrine of Christ, and that's as such they are opponents of God. Verse 8 starts with a warning to all of us. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. John is calling us all to be on guard against false teaching. This is a real and present danger for all of us, and the consequences are huge if we fall into the enemy's trap. If we remember, this letter was addressed to the leaders in a local church context. What is at stake? Here isn't just a matter of the, for the individual reader reading this letter, but for the whole church that they are ministering to. The consequences of being seduced by this false teaching uh, are described as losing what we have worked for. And then the flip side of that, so that we may win a full reward. So the question is, what could be lost that they were working towards? And what is this reward that is mentioned? The work that is mentioned is referencing the hard work of evangelism and teaching and pastoral care that both the apostles and the local church have been working towards. It is the good news of the gospel and all that has gone on to spread the good news. The reward that is intended Uh, that his intended audience, uh, he wanted his audience to understand, is a bit more debated. Both viewpoints are valid, but one interpretation would argue that those who do not continue in the truth and sound doctrine give evidence they were never truly converted in the first place. Another interpretation of John's meaning, and probably the most commonly held one, is that it is not about winning or losing your salvation, which after all is a free gift, but rather their reward for faithful service. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 14 says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. By saying this, Paul is clearly stating that it is not an individual's salvation that is risk in this context, but that faithfulness to God's word will bring its reward for those who believe. In verse 9, 
John provides another warning for everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. This warning is specifically for those who are lured in, as, uh, as we talked about earlier on, by the new things and forget the core teaching of the Bible. A false doctrine can thrive where it is promoted as progressive, advanced thinking. New ideas have an irresistible fascination for a lot of us. But it is important to remember that this, is, this was part of the tactic used by the serpent when he seduced Eve uh, to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This has been a tactic of the evil one from the very beginning. In our time, several key emotive topics are challenging the church under the banner of progressive Christianity. In fact, these are liberal ideologies that have been rebranded as progressive to make them more palatable. We need to be aware of these and be on guard against them. Some of them include the sanctity of human life being eroded. Human life has become less meaningful. And the truth of God's word teaches us that we are made in God's image and that all life has value and therefore needs protecting from the baby in the womb through to the elderly. There's been a moving away from the word sin being used and instead there's a, a clear focus on the goodness of humanity in and of itself. There's been a moving away from the understanding that the Bible is the infallible word of God. There's been a redefining of the truth that God made us male and female. There's become a, a lack of belief in hell and this ideology would teach us universalism, that everyone will be saved, which blatantly goes against the word of God. And there's been a removing of the importance of the local church. Your faith can be your own, and you don't need to live in a Christ-centered community, is the argument. You can be an island and still know God. You can see how, humanly speaking, some of these ideas seem appealing. However, they blatantly go against the truth of the gospel, and we need to be on guard against them because we know that the Bible is the very true word of God. Second Timothy 13, uh, 3, sorry, 16 to 17 teaches us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Before I move on, I believe that it's important to mention one of the potential pitfalls for us when, we come to, when it comes to, to dealing with these issues. You see, it's easy for us to go too far the other way, becoming fully traditionalist for its own sake in fear of going on ahead, leading our, to hearts that get stuck in a rut of backward-looking negativity. However, the warning here is for those who go on ahead and do not abide in the teachings of Christ. This isn't a call to do things the way we've always done them for the sake of tradition. This is a call to always keep the teaching of Christ central in all that we do. We test, we discern, we challenge. Neither new ideas nor tradition are right and wrong in and of themselves. They all have to be brought to Scripture to be tested by its plumb line. Our challenge, your challenge, my challenge is to judge both the new and the old by this unchanging truth of God's word. And the only way we can do that is by reading our Bibles, by studying it, knowing that it is the primary way that God speaks to his people. 
if we proclaim that God is our king, then let's endeavor all to all of us to give him his rightful place in our lives by listening and learning from his voice every day. Verse 10 changes tact and starts to address the practical concern of what to do when a false teacher actively tries to teach heresy. And what the early church had was traveling missionaries who would seek to journey to different house churches to encourage them and teach them from the word of God. It would have been custom to invite these men into the home to welcome them officially and therefore provide them with an opportunity to teach the congregation. On top of that, you would have provided them with bed and board and allowed them to continue to serve the body of Christ uh, in this way. The text here is uh, referring to men who sought to take advantage of this hospitality, to spread their false message. As for the elders of the congregation, it was up to them to decipher whether or not these traveling missionaries were teaching the truth or not. In that, the core litmus test, so to speak, was the content of their message, not the plausibility or perceived charm of the individual. John's response to this scenario is therefore very straightforward. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not abide, does not, does not bring this teaching, do not receive them into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked work. It's important to remember, to remind ourselves of the context that we find ourselves in here. The letter, remember, is being written to the local church body and this local church body likely met in someone's home. What else do we know about the individual in question? We know that he seeks to bring teaching. This is not someone who merely believes a false doctrine. This is someone who seeks to spread and teach it. These are people who are engaged in the systematic dissemination of lies, dedicated missionaries of error. And so John is um, in giving this warning and protecting the church. Also, and so John in giving this warning is protecting the church in two ways. He is preventing the church from hearing false teaching by not allowing the individual platform. And he is also preventing the individual from receiving credibility by not providing him with a welcome that in turn serves to protect other churches as the man is not receiving an endorsement from this local church body. Probably for us, the most obvious groups that come to mind when we hear this are Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons, but there are many more, however, that also fall into this category, and we need to stay on guard. It's also important to acknowledge what this passage is not saying. This passage passage is not saying that we shouldn't accept people into our congregation that we differ on in secondary matters. We can disagree on issues of baptism, for example, or how often we take communion. These are not reasons not to show hospitality and welcome. This passage refers to those who, who seek to teach a different core doctrine that is essential in our core understanding of who God is. The line can be drawn on matters of central doctrine of our faith not secondary matters of church order or governance on which it is perfectly okay for Christians to differ. As I shared at the start of this, uh, this talk, this book is extremely small and so John in his final greeting in verses 12 and 13 acknowledges this and expresses his longing to be with his, with, with his church in person. He says, though I have much to write to you, 
I would rather not put, use pen, paper, and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of the elect sister greet you. This short ending to the book serves to show us the shortcomings of non-verbal communication and therefore serves to emphasize the importance of the local gathered church as a means to encourage, teach, and admonish each other. We all know that written words can so often be misinterpreted and taken the wrong way. As demonstrated by John here, this has always been the case. However, as we become more connected, the reality is that we are becoming a lot more disconnected with each other. So often, Jen and I, when we were in different rooms in the house, instead of getting up, we would text each other a question or a request. Here, John, stick on the kettle for me, will you? Poor form, I know. But in seriousness, there are conversations that need to take place face to face. However, out of fear, I feel like we so often retreat into the safety of our phones and send a text instead. Simply not good. We are so familiar with that way of communicating that we have lost the ability to discern what conversations need to take place face to face. As John puts it here, for him in this context, talking face to face will allow not just his joy to be complete, but also that of his audience. There is a joy to be had by having conversations with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that are both encouraging and difficult. There's a joy to be had in those conversations. By choosing to have these conversations in person, we are choosing to allow our hearts, your hearts, to be seen. My prayer is that our hearts and your hearts would be reflect, reflect that of Christ Jesus for your brothers and sisters. We've covered a lot of ground this morning, and so I simply want to leave you with these three challenges. Continue to walk in the truth of God's word and love others accordingly. Be discerning with what spiritual food you consume. Ensure that the word of God is at the core of everything you read or listen to. Reject all false teaching outright and do not let gain a foothold anywhere in your life. Let's pray. God, we just want to thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that it is your truth, Lord. You've breathed it to life and we can rely on it as our constant plumb line for life. We thank you, Lord, that uh, as a church body that we can encourage and admonish each other in this context, knowing that uh, it is out of love that we do that, Lord. And I pray that we would share that heart of yours, that we would love one another in truth and love in all that we do. And so I pray this morning that as we have gone through this passage, Lord, that any uh, words, message from yourself uh, would just resonate in our hearts and anything that is from me, Lord, just take it away. I pray that you'd be challenging us and you'd help us to uh, dwell on your word all day long. Amen.